together. Don't mean to be prejudiced, but it's one of my favorite soloists. So. That arrangement of the Lord's Prayer, by the way, is also by one of our own here in Chattanooga. It's by Jim Ward at uh, New City uh, Fellowship downtown. So, Let me ask you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Genesis chapter 45. If you're visiting with us, I'd like to invite you to the uh, visitor's class that uh, I have the privilege to teach uh, in the hour that follows. Hopefully gives you an opportunity to know a little bit more about who we are. Gives me the opportunity to meet you and just to uh, tell you we go through a cycle of lessons. Hopefully each one stands on its own two feet, but today's lesson uh, deals with one of the major questions uh, that is that uh, is asked by people who come here as visitors, and that's what are these people doing baptizing babies? So that's what we're uh, that's the issue that we're addressing today, um, and hopefully you might find that to be uh, at least somewhat instructive. And elders, please please hear me. I need you in my office just as quickly after 12 o'clock as possible. It's really important, so please be there as soon as you can, and uh, all elders uh, are invited. All right. Genesis chapter 45, let me read beginning at verse 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 14, and then we will pray and give some more consideration to this story Uh, concerning Jacob's family. Uh, Genesis 45, verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household... In all that you have, do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked 
with him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, give us now your understanding of these profound truths set before us in the unfolding of this story. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Two years of famine forces the patriarch Jacob to send all of his sons, except Benjamin the youngest, to send the rest to Egypt to buy grain, where grain is available. Available because Pharaoh's cupbearer told Pharaoh about a Hebrew prisoner who could possibly interpret these dreams that Pharaoh has had that have troubled him so. Well, Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dreams. Joseph, giving God the glory, tells Pharaoh that his dreams are a warning from God that seven years of plenty will be followed by seven years of famine. It's Joseph. Hebrew prisoner Joseph, Rachel's first child, Jacob's eleventh son, and his had been his daddy's favorite. But his older brothers, full of jealousy and hate, had sold him into slavery and then lied to their father, telling Jacob that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. For ten years or more, Joseph was imprisoned in Egypt. And just always let that soak in for a moment, because sometimes we just, just go so quickly over that fact. For ten years or more, Joseph had been imprisoned in Egypt, bound hand and foot and, according to the psalmist, by the neck. He was there having been falsely accused of rape by his master's wife. But now, having interpreted Pharaoh's dream and and boldly offered advice to Pharaoh about how to deal with the coming years of famine, Joseph suddenly finds himself elevated by Pharaoh to the position of prime minister of Egypt. Well, in Genesis 42 and 43, some 22 years after selling their brothers into slavery and, and during that second year of famine, we find those ten older brothers making that week-long journey to Egypt. To purchase grain, they must first bow down to the one who is the dispenser of grain, Egypt's prime minister. They come before him, they bow, they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And then Joseph uses his authority as prime minister to control the events of the next few months. It begins by by Joseph accusing them of being spies, and they insist that that's not true, and he insists that the only way that they can prove their innocence is to bring to Egypt their youngest brother, Benjamin, who is Joseph's full brother, Joseph and Benjamin, children of Rachel, Rachel's only two children, and this brother Benjamin, Jacob's twelfth and final son, and now his daddy's favorite. Well, the brothers leave Egypt, head for Canaan. 
They're fearful. They are fearful that God is punishing them for what they did to Joseph so many years before. For what they did to Joseph, whom, of course, they assumed to be dead. They're they're even more disturbed when they open their sacks and discover that the money they took to buy grain has been returned to their saddlebacks. As Genesis 43 ends, the brothers, accompanied by Benjamin, despite Jacob's protest, the brothers return to Egypt because their grain is gone. Upon returning to Egypt, they're they're shocked, they're, they're fearful, and they are astonished to find themselves invited to the home of the prime minister and then to find themselves seated at his table in order of age. And then they watch as Benjamin, daddy's favorite, they watch as Benjamin is served five times more food than all the rest. But now, 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 instead of being consumed with jealousy and hate, toward Benjamin, sitting there with five drumsticks while all the rest only have one, instead of being consumed with jealousy and hatred for daddy's favorite, Scripture simply tells us that they actually enjoy the food, enjoy the drink, and appear to actually enjoy one another's company. Genesis 44, as they prepare to return to Canaan, Joseph commands his steward to once more place in their sacks, in the the sacks of the brothers, to place in their sacks the money they brought to buy grain, to do that again for the second time, and now to take Joseph's silver cup and hide it in Benjamin's saddlebag. And then early the next morning, they start for home, but they're stopped by Egyptian police. They're accused of stealing Joseph's cup. The brothers insist that can't possibly be true. They boldly assert in verse 9 of chapter 40, uh, of chapter 43, they, they, they bold, of chapter 44, they boldly assert, whichever of your servants is found with it, whichever of your servants is found to have that silver cup, He will die, and we will become your Lord's servants. Well, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, right where Joseph had it placed. Now, now think about it. Think about all you know. Think about everything you know about this story. Now, now what are they going to do? It's a moment of crisis. What will they do? These men who have a history of selling daddy's favorite into slavery. They've done that once. Now, the prime minister's silver cup is in Benjamin's saddlebag. The penalty is... Wherever that cup is found, that individual will die. That's their own boast. So what are they going to do? What they do offers us the first hint of the promise of reconciliation. 
for this desperately dysfunctional family. It's the first hint of reconciliation. Because what they do, and don't, don't just run past it, what they do is not say, sorry Ben. What they do is accompany their brother back to Egypt. It's totally out of character in regards to everything we know about these men. Back in Egypt, the prime minister insists that Benjamin will be his slave and the rest are to go home. And it's in response to that announcement on the part of the prime minister, Joseph, that Judah makes his great speech in verses 18 through 34 of chapter 44 of Genesis, in which he basically says, if I return to my father without Benjamin, it will kill him. Look at verse 33 and following. Judah pleads, please, please let your servant, let me, let Judah, let me remain and become your slave in the place of my brother Benjamin. Please let Benjamin return to his, return with his, with his brothers to my father. If he doesn't, it's going to kill my father. Now, stop and remember. 22 years earlier, whose idea had it been to sell Joseph into slavery? It was Judah's idea. It was Judah's idea. But now, now, Judah becomes... Judah becomes the first person in Scripture to offer himself up in the place of another. Genesis 45 begins with Joseph in response to Judah's speech, with Joseph's heart breaking. He orders all of the Egyptians out of the room, leaving him alone with his brothers. And he says to them in verse 3, I am Joseph. And then he asks very quickly, how is my father? Is he still alive? Well, (laughs) understandably, understandably, the brothers are just absolutely too stunned, too breathless to answer any question that they're asked. So Joseph tells them again in verse 4, I am your brother Joseph. And then he adds... The brother you sold into slavery. Well, how would you like to be one of those brothers? I mean, what's your thought at that moment? What's your thought at that moment? Can you imagine the thoughts racing through the, their, their minds as they, as they hear from the second most powerful man in the most, of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth as far as the known world was concerned. Can you imagine what races through their minds as they hear what could be taken as words of condemnation? I am your brother Joseph who you sold into slavery. But, but look at the Scripture. I, I think Joseph knows. Joseph immediately senses. I know what they're thinking. So very quickly, in verse 5, he assures them, don't be distressed. 
I mean, it's probably written all over their faces. Joseph says, don't be distressed. Don't, Don't be angry with yourselves. God set me before you to preserve your life. Wow. I mean, that, that's such a stunning idea that it's reinforced repeatedly by Joseph. Look at verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. I mean, there's so much theology tied up in that verse that we could spend a month just taking it apart. These are the chosen people of God. It is through these people that God will raise up for Himself that nation from which will come our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. Look at verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Look at verse 9. It is God who has made me Lord of all Egypt. So Joseph tells him, you go back to Canaan, you bring the entire family, you bring them to Goshen, that fertile pasture land that's just east of the Nile. <laughs> and I just, I just love the, the reality of all of this. The brothers are so dumbfounded that Joseph has to say to them again in verse 12, look at me, look closely. Let your eyes see. Let the eyes of my brother see. Recognize the one who is talking to you. And then, having mentioned Benjamin, Joseph's emotions break once more. And he reaches out and he embraces his brother. And he weeps with him. And again, stop. And put yourself in the sandals of those other ten brothers. I mean, what are you thinking as you watch? And remember the extended family history here. What are you thinking as you watch daddy's two favorites hugging each other? Well, la-di-da. I mean, what are you thinking? But then, then, Joseph turns and he takes hold of each one of them and he hugs each one of them and he weeps over each and every one of them. And verse 15 ends without a whole lot of comment. It just simply ends with a a glorious, miraculous scene of reconciliation. All the brothers, the ten oldest, Benjamin and Joseph, and they're all talking to one another. Well, when Pharaoh's made aware of all of this, he insists that Joseph's father and family come to Egypt. And he promises in verse 18 to give Joseph's family the best of the land of Egypt. Um, And then he orders them to be supplied with the wagons needed to make the move. And so here are the brothers. They've heard what Joseph has had to say. They've got Pharaoh's promise. They've been supplied with wagons. And now they return to Canaan. But as they're about to return to Canaan, look at verse 24. Again, I just love the humanity, the reality of the Scriptures. 
as they're about to return to Canaan, Joseph says to them, now look. Now look, guys. I don't want any quarreling on the way back. No quarreling. That's marvelous. This is not a story. This is not a, a fairy tale. This is a historical event. I don't know what you guys... What are they going to quarrel about? Well, one thing... I know one thing they could quarrel about. Imagine this discussion during the week-long trek back to Canaan. So what are we going to tell Dad? I mean, think about that. We've told Dad for 22 years that Joseph was dead at the hands of wild animals. We brought him the blood-soaked cloak. Now what are we going to tell Dad? We're going to go back. We've got to go back and say to Dad, uh... Joseph's alive. I mean, who would have thunk it? That must have been a very interesting discussion. I hope it's on tape somewhere so we can, or whatever those things are, so we can watch it. Well, they reach home. They report to Jacob about all that has happened in Egypt. And most importantly, they tell their father, Joseph is alive. Jacob is, is stunned, and, and then he's overjoyed, and, and then, surprises me a little bit, he, he really is eager to move to Egypt so that he might see Joseph once more before he dies. And isn't it interesting? I mean, I, I just find it, I always find it intriguing what the Scripture doesn't tell us. We're not told that Jacob ever questioned the idea that Joseph was still alive. I wonder, I mean, forgive me for this, this is pure speculation. I just wonder if he had always questioned somewhat the veracity of the story the brothers had told about how Joseph died. But, but in the Scripture, Jacob is not ever seen revisiting the past. The past can't be changed. All that matters is that Joseph, his dear son, is alive. And so in chapter 46, they begin to move. And on their way to Egypt, they stop in Beersheba, which is the southernmost border of the future land of Israel. And there at Beersheba, just before entering Egypt, there in Beersheba, Jacob does what his father Isaac did, what his, great, what his grandfather Abraham had done at Beersheba. Jacob offers up a sacrifice to God, and God appears to him. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 46. God says to him, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You know, as, as this story unfolds, by God's, in God's wisdom, we're allowed to go behind the scenes, to go behind the curtain, if you will, and to watch God sovereignly work in the lives of His people, using even their sins to accomplish His good and perfect purposes. 
I mean, we know the truth of what Joseph repeatedly insists in chapter 45 when he says in different ways, but over and over again he says to his brothers, you sold me into slavery, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you and your descendants. And then you talk about the, the reality of this story. When Jacob dies, 17 years later, when Jacob dies, the brothers, because they're people just like you and me, people just like us, the brothers are worried that Joseph will now seek his revenge. And once more, Joseph, I think discerning their thoughts and their concerns, he mercifully assures them in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We're also given a front row seat to witness the reconciliation of a horribly dysfunctional family. And again, it's a story of grace. God's grace at work in and through His people, in and through people just like us. And all of that is good news. The sovereign God at work in Genesis is the same God at work in our lives working all things together to accomplish good, His number one good purpose, according to Romans 8.29, is to make us more and more like Christ. By the grace that saves, by that same grace, we are transformed into people who understand by God's grace, who, who understand and by God's grace are enabled to respond with a willing obedience to the, to the teachings of our Lord. To the teachings of our Lord who taught, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Who taught, who taught us to pray, Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Don't miss that. Judah was willing to take Benjamin's place. Whose place are you willing to take? For whom are you willing to suffer humiliation and rebuke and discomfort and difficulties? Benjamin... Judah willingly takes, is willing to take, but Jesus willingly suffered in our place the penalties for our rebellious attitudes and actions against the one by whom and for whom we were made. If by grace through faith, listen to me, if by grace through faith you have embraced Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, if by grace through faith you know God has been merciful to me. God has been gracious to me. If all of that is true, then who is that one that you insist you cannot be reconciled to? And you all know what I'm talking about. There's people out there with whom you just don't like. 
And if you knew what, if you only knew, if you only knew what they have done, if you only knew what they have failed to do, if you only knew what they had said to me, you'd understand why I can't be reconciled to them. So your situation is worse than Joseph's. Sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, imprisoned for ten or more years, his hands and feet bound, a fetter around his neck. Ten or more years. Look how raw his neck was after all that time. Ten or more years. But of course, the This is the bottom line. The Joseph story isn't about Joseph. The the, the Joseph story isn't even about Judah. The Joseph story is about God. It's about what God can do in and through His people. And likewise, this story is not about you. It's about God's glory and how He can use us to bless others. Let me ask you something. What message is conveyed loud and clear when you claim to be a recipient of God's mercy and forgiveness, and, and you, and, but you also, you also demonstrate at the same time by your, by your, your attitudes and your, your words and your actions that you just don't have the ability to forgive and forget. You don't have the ability to forgive and to show mercy to those who have sinned against you. You, you just can't do that. I don't know of any way biblically that can add up. For the sake of God's glory, for the sake of others, for the sake of God's people, for the sake of His body, for the sake of your family, for, the, for your own personal sake, be merciful and forgive. Even as God has forgiven you and has been merciful to you. I mean, there. I went online. Steps to reconciliation. Wow. I never knew there were so many ways to be reconciled. I mean, I could give you 15 different lists of 6, 7, 8, 10, 12 Well, it's a little bit much for me, but, you know, different steps that you can take to bring about reconciliation. I don't have any to give you. I don't have any to give you. Why? Because we are supernatural creatures. If by grace through faith you have embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you belong to Him, He dwells within you, you are supernaturally equipped and enabled and empowered to forgive and to show mercy. And the only reason you won't forgive and you won't show mercy, whatever the situation, is because you don't want to. No other reason. 
Because I know what the Scriptures teach, and the Scriptures say, yes, you can. If you've sinned and confessed and repent, put your life in God's hands, be willing to be lovingly disciplined by Him in any way that you should be disciplined, and willingly confess and submit yourself to the one that you've sinned against. If you've been the one who was, was, who was sinned against, if you're the one who has been sinned against, then take notes from Joseph. What does Joseph do? He gives up control. You understand that? Joseph has this, this entire situation completely under his control. Then he gives up that control. I'm your brothers. I forgive you. Let's go get daddy and the family and move them to Goshen. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. 17 years later, I forgive you. He gives up control. You're the, usually the one who's been sinned against can really control the situation. Well, I know what you did. I know what you said. And what they did and what they said might be, might be awful. But what have you said and done against your Lord? And He has extended to you mercy and forgiveness over and over and over again. Give it up. Embrace those who have sinned against you. Weep with them. Forgive and be merciful to them. Even as God forgives and is merciful to you. Easier said than done? Absolutely. That's why the title of this sermon is, But God. Salvation is supernatural. You are supernaturally justified. You are supernaturally adopted as a child of God. You are supernaturally sanctified. It is all supernatural. And that's who you are, a man or a woman, a husband or a wife, a parent or a child, whom God has forgiven, to whom God has been merciful, and who God now supernaturally equips and enables and empowers to both will and do what pleases Him and blesses others. Listen to me. Do you look at our culture and go, what a mess? Listen. The bedrock of our culture is our families. You just draw the lines. You, you connect the dots. When our families are dysfunctional, the culture grows dysfunctional. You are this world's only hope because you and you alone, along with all those others throughout this country, and there are hundreds of thousands, millions of others who know and love the Lord. You're this world's only hope. And the only way to put this world right side up is to begin by putting your family right side up. And if you think your family is only about you, you're wrong. Your family has to do with everything. 
It impacts the church. It impacts your community. It impacts your school. It impacts your country. It inevitably impacts the world. That's how important you are. That's how important you are. By God's grace. Let me tell you one story and I'm done. Story of reconciliation. I won't be here this evening. I'll be up at uh, West Hills along with others. West Hills Presbyterian Church in Knoxville for the installation of their new pastor. Let me tell you this. I was there 15 months ago. I don't remember. 14 months, 15 months ago. I was... uh, You know, when you get to be the old man in the presbytery, people think you know what you're doing. You know, so that when tensions rise, they're going to... Let's call the old man. He knows how to handle this. I just hope they never find out how little I know. But I moderating their congregational meeting at which they were voting on whether or not to accept their pastor's resignation. It was not a pleasant or fun evening. And when the vote was taken, the vote was 75 in favor of accepting their pastor's resignation, 74 against accepting their pastor's resignation. So I quickly quickly lowered the gavel and said, resignation is accepted, let's pray. Very quickly. Uh, Ernie provided me transportation that day, as he will today, and we quickly got out of there. We left very quickly. Well, let me just tell you this. John Herbrick and Eva have been faithfully ministering to those people for the last many, many months. And they, at a congregational meeting held about, I don't know, a month ago, six weeks ago, they voted unanimously to call this, new, this man, John McKenzie, is that the, to call John McKenzie to be their new pastor. 150 to zero. Just you and me talking. I've never gotten a unanimous call. It's called reconciliation. Thank you, John. Thank you, Eva. Thank you, Lord. It's called reconciliation. But it has to begin with you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for this uh, unfolding of Your Word. Uh, Thank You, oh God, thank You for Your mercy and for Your grace, which are new to us every morning. (laughs) Every morning we wake up and anew, we experience Your mercy. We experience your grace. May we be gracious. May we be merciful. May we forgive as we have been forgiven. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is hymn 523.